This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Pip Williams, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's just a delight to be here. It is. We're already giggling. You know, we've had a few troubles with the uh, the, the technology, and uh, it was just a one touch fix. Who right? would have thought two middle aged women would have trouble with the technology? That's right. That's right. Now, this woman needs no introduction. Pip. Uh, was born in London, grew up in Sydney and now lives in the Adelaide Hills of South Australia with her family and an assortment of animals. She has spent most of her working life as a social researcher studying what keeps us well and what helps us thrive. And she is the author of One Italian Summer, a memoir of her family's travel in search of the good life, which was published by a firm uh, a few years back to wider claim. What year was that? Uh, We went to Italy in 2011. Uh, And I wrote that book in 2017. It was published in 2017. I wrote it over a few years, obviously. um, I feel as though sometimes it's a wellness book. It makes you feel good reading it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was sort of, as far as memoir goes, it certainly wasn't misery memoir. It was, yeah, it was sort of heading in the other direction. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Uh, Her first novel, The Dictionary of Lost Words, based on her original research in the Oxford English Dictionary Archives, was published in 2020 and became an international bestseller. The Bookbinder of Jericho is her second novel and again combines her talent for historical research and beautiful storytelling. I mean, gorgeous storytelling. Oh, thank you so yeah. much. Now, listen, I'm going to say this um, and you can agree or disagree, but I feel that with the Dictionary of Lost Words that we kind of did this together. Remember? Yes. The, oh, the, the lockdown. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Because everything happened really quickly. So, like, probably you and I, in the space of a few days, had to rethink our schedule for the next six yes. months because we were so optimistic yes. that, yes. <laughs> that the, we thought it was only going to be pandemic. Six yeah, might yeah. not last that long. And yeah, we did. We had to kind of rethink yeah. how we'll do things, and very, very quickly, yeah, you had things sorted. I was just incredibly, incredibly impressed by by you and booksellers and everybody who just everybody. sort of came to the party so yeah. fast. We were making decisions. I mean, I remember I got a phone call that morning and again, I've got goosebumps, um, you know, and so many people, I mean, it's a tragedy for so many, for millions and of people. But, you know, here I was sitting at home thinking, what happens now? What happens with the business? You know, mm. where are we? What mm. happens to writers? And a friend of mine, Dan, said, 
you need to pivot, Cheryl. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, I don't know what pivot <laughs> means. And then I picked up your book because I knew that it was coming out. And I thought, how are we going to tell the world about this book without you travelling? And that's when we came up with the idea of doing a Facebook Live. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was fantastic. And it worked. It did. And yeah. um, I've said this before, but I think there was a lot of serendipity about my book and I feel incredibly grateful because a lot of mm. debut authors, especially if they published in April, May, June, mm. any other time that year, mm. did really miss out on that not having face-to-face events Mm. but because mine came out in the first week of lockdown and yeah your your first online event I I was doing those zoom events in week one and two Mm. and three Mm. and 250 people were turning up Mm. and if I'd gone to a venue to do Mm. a similar kind of talk I would have had 20 people because Mm. I was an unknown novelist Mm. Um, no one had read the book Mm. It would have been really hard to engage with readers that way initially, but because everybody was stuck at home and didn't have anything to do that Friday night, <laughs> you know, they mm. they got on Zoom, took the chance, and mm. suddenly I had just a whole lot of people engaging with the book who wouldn't have normally. Um, and so that's the serendipity for me. It mm. was about the timing in the end, and, and because it was out so soon after we went into lockdown, mm. I think that helped. Mm. But I do think too, um, I don't know if I've spoken about this on, on this podcast, that, you know, it was obviously a complete tragedy, global tragedy. But the good things that have come from it for us is really being able to reach rural, regional people, isolated people, people Mm. that can't get to events anyway, people that are housebound for whatever reason, disability or whatever, now join in and have the same experience as everybody else. Yeah. And I feel, I used to work as a community planner uh, and I used to work in libraries. And so I have this experience of trying to engage people who are difficult to engage. And COVID was this natural kind of experiment, really. And what I realise and everybody realises is that doing these hybrid events, which is what we now sometimes do, so we still, we're back to live events, but we haven't given up Mm. on the Zooming of a live event, which just gives people who might be um, reluctant to drive at night, who might, yeah, who can't can't. drive at all, who might, um, have some kind of mobility Mm -hmm. issue and can't Mm. get out. It gives them access to community. Oh, we see it every Thursday at two o'clock. Yes. Yes, that's right. And I think other community-based organisations and events are taking that from COVID and they're making it part of their programming and I hope it doesn't stop because I think it made a massive difference. Oh, well, it hasn't stopped for Mm. us Mm. and we do have that live event and I'll spruik it. I never talk about it actually, but, you know, tune in Thursday 2pm on Facebook. We are always live. Mm. We are always there. Mm. The amount of people that rely on us, Pip, you know, mm. just swarms my heart. Yeah. And there are a lot of them in rural and regional areas yeah. that don't can't get to events. They love these events so much. But they will say things, oh, sorry, Cheryl, you know, my daughter popped in and I didn't catch it live, but I'll watch it tonight. Or hang on, hang on a second, the doorbell, that's somebody at the door. <laughs> and I've got to answer the door. So they have a relationship with us. Yes. And I think that's the other thing that the Zooming did yeah. for everybody in workplaces as well. Mm. Suddenly... 
we got this um, insight into people's domestic mm. lives, which makes everybody a little more real. Mm. Um, and I think it also made us more compassionate mm. in that sense because oh, we got absolutely. to see, yeah, we got to see another um, more vulnerable side of people. Well, I got to interact with people I, I don't mm. think I would have been because we were only doing live events up yeah. till then. Do you know, and even up till then, I was never doing um, a podcast that wasn't live. Mm. Like, if you couldn't come in, then we weren't podcasting mm. you. I mean, mm. how crazy is that? Now? I know. And how quickly yeah. did we learn how to do it all? That's right. Even us middle-aged women <laughs> figured <laughs> it out. <laughs> That's right. I made a few minute mistakes um, in the beginning. I know, but they're funny. <laughs> they're funny. They're funny now. Like, the, yeah. you know, I remember there was that, um, there was some, in, you know, it was the UN or something. They were having some meeting and some guy, <laughs> one of the men on the Zoom was a cat, a cat mm-hmm. face on mm-hmm. because his his yeah. child had put this <laughs> yeah. cat yeah, face yeah. on the Zoom thing and he didn't know how to turn and it off. And kids walking into <laughs> interviews. I know. Yeah, yeah so it's, it just brings us all down to earth. Now, listen, I think that, you know, the Dictionary of Lost Words, I think it's one of the best-selling books in this country now. I don't know. I've got some stats around it here, I think. Uh, the top five books sold in Australia, you know, collectively. I mean, amazing for a first fiction. That's right. It's a first it's fiction. Ma- yeah. That? Yeah. That's my first fiction. Yeah. And every time we talk about it on Better Reading and, you know, I, I, I know this is audio, but it's got one, two, three, four, five, six stickers on the front cover. It's like out. a bottle of wine. It is. My, the problem is I always avoid bottles of wine with too many stickers. Oh, <laughs> I, I think it's I, trying <laughs> too hard. <laughs> and it's been on the Better Reading top 100 um, every time, I think in the top 10. Now, that must be tough then, and I'm not taking away from the success of this, but then to sit down and write your next is a challenge, I'd imagine. I think it would have been more of a challenge um, had COVID not been part of the environment that I was writing in. Talk to me about that. Because so, were you intimidated by the success in a way that that puts pressure on the next book or were you? No. And I'll tell you why. It's because it's two reasons. I'm not on social media. So I wasn't actually engaging with some of the hype. I would just mm. occasionally get um, a phone call from my publisher just telling me how many we'd sold in the previous And you thought that was normal, week. selling thousands of no, copies every I, week. I didn't, but it, I was very removed from that bit of – it's a bit of information, if mm. that makes sense, yeah. and you hear it, but then nothing around me is any different. And that's because I'm not going to festivals, I'm not going to libraries and talking to real human beings. So I didn't actually have the physicality of a successful book. Mm. I just had a couple of lines in an email every now and then, um, which didn't translate into into anything practical or physical around me, if that does that make sense? Yeah. And because I'm not on social media, I wasn't getting a constant kind of yep. feedback about it. And what did change is I was able to leave my job. So I I had taken four months off work to do the book tour, which then didn't eventuate, but there was still things to do. And so I decided to continue on that with that leave. Um, and when that four months was up, it was obvious I didn't have to go back to work immediately. Yeah. Um, and it was just the greatest kind of privilege really to to sort of sit down with my partner and say okay I think I could write full time for a couple of years let's let's do that let's commit to that so that was the biggest change for me and what it meant was 
again, because, you know, the borders were closed and South Australia was very different, which is where I live, to most of the country. We had more of the Perth experience, the mm. Western Australia experience, mm. um, where because of our, our strict border closures, we didn't actually have COVID in the state much at all for about 18 months. And mm. so life pretty much went on as normal after that first lockdown. And, and so I was able to continue my writing routine, which is to write in coffee shops. The first lockdown was a bit of a, mm. <laughs> a, bit of a weird one for me because I can't write at home. Why? Um, I, oh, I think it's the pressure. Um, I have, my partner has kind of built me this beautiful writing room <laughs> out of straw bale and it's just gorgeous. Um, and I, that's where I wrote One Italian Summer. But in a way, it's the perfect writing space and that perfection uh, puts a lot of pressure on you because yes. suddenly you have to write. And mm. I struggled to write that first book as desperately as I wanted to write it. The Dictionary of Lost no, Words. No, the, no, the, um, the memoir, One Italian Summer. Right. And so when I wrote The Dictionary of Lost Words, I, I totally changed my routine. I decided just to write where I feel happiest, which is a coffee shop. And Was I'm your very... partner disappointed? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that room gets used for a whole lot of other things. Oh, good. Um, uh, so I just liked the cafe. I'm an introvert, but my happiest place is being alone in a crowd and just having life around me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I've trained myself essentially to write in a coffee shop and I love it and I look forward to it. And I How many coffees do you have? Uh, I have a limit of three. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. <laughs> um, and the cafes that I write in are incredibly generous and they let me sit there all day if I want to. But that's been fantastic. But during lockdown, I couldn't obviously do that and I couldn't write at home. So I used to sit outside the cafe in my car and just phone in my coffee order and they'd bring it to the car window and I'd just write in my car for two or three hours every day during lockdown. Um, We were allowed to do that. So were you still in the driver's seat when you were riding? No, I'd I'd shift to the the passenger seat. Oh my goodness. And it was great. It was this little tiny micro office. You know, the dash becomes your desk and and there's somewhere for my coffee. Is it ergonomic? (laughs) It was. It was was strangely ergonomic. Yeah. Yeah. I never got backache. Yeah. Um, Do you know, I've spoken to um, hundreds of authors. I think it's over 400 now. And I've never known a writer to write in the car. (laughs) I have known a writer to write on a tractor. Oh, really? Yes, but not in a car. Well, needs must. (laughs) That's right. I I didn't think I'd ever be able to write in a car, but um, the car was better than my perfect writing space at home. um, And and I got to, I mean, this was during lockdown, so it was, you know, six or eight weeks, I think. And the other thing about it is that the busiest, most social place, you know, in the community was the people waiting for their takeaway coffee outside Yes. All those coffee shops that were allowed to serve takeaway. Yes. So through my car window, I still got to see the yeah. local community, um, yeah. and it was yeah, it was incredibly. Connecting. So this is when you were writing this book. Yeah, that that's we're talking Bind- about. That's now. right. That's yeah. that's where Bookbinder essentially started because I did start writing it before Dictionary came out because there's that, there's a period. Yeah, there's a connection between the two, but there's also a period between handing in the manuscript just before it goes to print and when it's published Mm. where I have nothing to do. There's no edits. There's, Mm. you know, I have nothing to do for that book. And so I started writing Bookbinder. 
So you didn't feel the pressure of a second book? No. I, I've, because of not knowing? Yeah. I didn't. I didn't. Um, partly because at the beginning I didn't know how well dictionary might do. So yeah. I was just getting on getting on with it. Yeah. Though the risk there, and this is something that I thought about, because the two stories, is, I call them companion novels, you can actually read them separately and mm-hmm. you could read them in either order, mm-hmm. though I would still read dictionary first, but you could read them in either order. Mm. Because they were so connected, I think of them as holding hands, these two books. Mm. And when I started writing it, dictionary hadn't even been published. And then, you know, it, it it did do well the first mm. few weeks, but, you know, I think so many of us do this. I made all sorts of excuses for why it was doing well mm. and none of them were because it was a good book. Mm. <laughs> it was, oh, because the timing was so good, mm. because booksellers and, and you know, you guys are so amazing that you're just, it's it's just come out at the right time, There blah, is blah, blah. that discovery element for sure, you know, and that contributes. Mm. However... A story doesn't carry itself any further than that launch time unless it's a good book. I know. And I, I guess I hadn't I hadn't mm. come to that yet. I was mm. thinking it's at the moment it's riding on the timing, you know, because no one's actually actually had a chance to read it yet. They've just mm. sort of turned up to these online events and bought the book, hoping <laughs> hoping they'll enjoy it. And, you know, you make all sorts of excuses for success. Sometimes, just like some people make excuses for failure mm. um, that have nothing to do with you mm. <laughs> or, or the thing that you've done. And so I sort of was a little concerned about the fact I was writing a companion novel when I didn't know how that first novel might go. How the other companion exactly. was getting on. Well, yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> if it had been a complete flop, yeah. what was I doing writing a yes. companion to a flop, if if that makes sense. That would have been strategically a really stupid thing to do. And yet I really wanted to tell this story. So there was a certain amount of hesitation, I suppose, at first. And then when it was clear that people enjoyed dictionary, I just got on with it because, like I said, I wasn't really engaged in the hype. Mm. Um, And it wasn't until I was... I had pretty. I was really close to finishing my first draft. That Martin Hughes sort of checked in with me. The firm press are just fabulous, wonderful, um, people. fabulous publishers, yeah. incredibly caring, mm-hmm. and um, and so he was checking in to make sure that I was feeling okay um, about the pressure of writing a follow up to a successful mm-hmm. debut. And it was hilarious because I had never thought of it before, mm-hmm. and suddenly. Suddenly I thought, oh, should I be feeling anxious about this, <laughs> this second book? Bless his heart. Yeah, he didn't, that wasn't what he <laughs> that intended. That wasn't what he intended. Um, but I think I was so far through it by that stage that it didn't it, it didn't matter. Yeah. Um, I, I had already done the hard work. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like, yeah, I feel like the COVID experience did protect me a little bit from the second book anxiety. Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, is there a third book? I do have a third idea for another Oxford novel. Yeah. Um, and this... But I'm not going to write it straight away. I okay. think I think I'm going to give myself a little bit of a break from the research because yep. these books are very yep. dependent on pretty thorough mm. research. Yeah. And I have another idea in mind which is far more contemporary and closer to home. Mm. Um, I won't talk about it just no, yet because I'm no. not I'm not quite sure yeah. uh, how it's going to develop. But it was actually the book I was writing before I started writing Dictionary. And I put it aside because Dictionary of Lost Words was just such a um, – it was just kind of bothering me. I had to follow that there. idea. Yeah, yeah, it insisted yeah. that it get written. And so I put this other book aside, uh, which at the time I thought was perhaps, a, you know, a, a story that I might have been – an easier story, really, mm. to write because it was closer to home mm. um, and more contemporary. I'm not so sure about that now. Um, <laughs> I don't know that it's an easier story to write, uh, but I'm still really interested in it. And yeah. so I'm going to give that one a go. Yeah. yeah. I think it was the, the, yeah. the passion's there. Yeah. Then yeah. you give it a and go. It, and that's the thing. Like, it's now been six years and mm. I still think about that mm. story. So I think that's a good test I think yeah. if you've got the passion, it, I mean, very, very likely that the reader will pick up on that. I hope that. so. Yeah. You wrote your nonfiction um, about your time in Italy um, and it's called One Italian Summer. But then what was it that made you turn your head to fiction? I th- I've always wanted to write fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first thing I ever published was a poem in Dolly magazine Oh, wow. Yeah, Cute. when I was 15. I know, I know. I'm so proud of that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> For so many reasons. Whenever I say that to somebody over a certain age, mm. their face lights up mm. because Dolly Magazine was just, it meant everything to to women my age when we were teenagers. Mm. Um, everyone read it. Mm. Uh, and And my first poem, which was so... Um, inventively called 15, which I wrote when I was 15, all about being 15, um, <laughs> it was, was published in that. And, um, and that was, you know, and I, it's funny, I said to a friend the other day, I don't, I don't know that I wanted to be a writer when I was young. And she just looked at me goggle-eyed and said, you always wanted to be a writer. And, and I guess the fact that I sent a poem into Dolly magazine is is proof of that. It's yeah. just that I don't remember this burning desire. What I remember is writing a lot yeah. uh, because I used to write to express myself. And a lot of what I wrote, though, was just private. Mm-hmm. There was no intention of anyone reading it. Mm-hmm. But it was a constant activity in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I, 
I guess I did want to be a writer, but I never was... I was never aware of a pathway to that. That's what I was going to say, and that's what I was just thinking then. And and a lot of authors have told me that. Like, you know, they were voracious readers, but mm. they never imagined yeah. that being an author was a career. And no. if you look at even the education system now, it's like, you know, people aren't going into the final year of high school and saying, would you like to be an author? No, and, and we had vocational... Yeah, we had... All of us had... We had to have vocational guidance you know, mm. sessions with a vocational guidance teacher at my public school. And writing was never an option. It wasn't something that no. we discussed. And I never considered it. I was listening to, um, I think it was John Boyd who wrote Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Yeah. He was talking about Irish writers because there are so many Irish writers. And he was asked this a similar question. You know, what made you, th- you know, when you were younger, did you want to be a writer, etc.? And he said, in Ireland, there are so many writers, so many role models for writing, that when you're a teenager, it is a viable pathway. Mm. And I, I was thinking about that recently and thinking there is a difference, I think, in some countries mm. where um, writing in Ireland, for instance, seems to have... It seems to be ma- it seems to be so part of the cultural experience um, and so accessible to so many mm. that considering writing as a vocation is not mm. out of this world. Whereas mm. in other places, writers are ver- rarefied. Mm. Writers are part of some elite. Mm-hmm. group of people who have access to, um, you know, the whatever it might be, it could be access to education and culture in a way that the rest of us don't. Mm-hmm. And I think that was my experience when I was younger, mm-hmm. um, you know, l- sort of lower middle class background. Culture wasn't something we consumed mm-hmm. necessarily. Mm-hmm. And whereas I think in Ireland... You don't have to be middle class or upper middle class to access those things. And so it's more of an option. And I think it's changing now. I yes, think. I do too. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, we're talking about the seventies. So. Yeah, I think yeah. that there's more pathways now, and, and young yeah. people do think of um, writing as a career. And there's degrees you can yeah. do now. I mean, there was nothing you could. There was no, no structure for no. being a creative writer no. when I was young or going to university. Yeah, but there. There was also, I had little access to role models because they were all of a different, you know. What did you like reading? I read widely. Um, My favourite thing as a child was Trixie Belden. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I, because, and I think I've thought about this, I say this all the time because there were so many, as a kid, you you know, you tend to gravitate to some of these series, these mystery series or detective series. You know, there was Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and the Famous Five and all of those sorts of things. But I loved Trixie Belden and I think it's because she she was the leader of the gang mm. and it was a gang of boys and girls rather than a girl's own adventure or a boy's own adventure. This mm. was kind of a mix of kids. She wasn't the prettiest and mm. she wasn't the smartest. Mm. And, and I just found it really refreshing. I think she was, I think it was a feminist there was something very feminist about the Trixie Belden series. And I, I read every single book and all of the puzzle books and I, I absolutely adored it. Mm. Um, and so that's when I was little. I 
And I just kind of picked up whatever. Like I loved the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, when I was quite small as well and read mm. that over and over and over as you do mm. when, when you're a child. I rediscovered a lot of those books when my own children mm. were mm. kind of ready to have them read to them and delighted in them, mm. um, all of the Tolkien books and so on. So, yeah, I, I sort of really quite liked fantasy mm. when I was younger and and still do, actually, uh, and speculative fiction, loved speculative fiction. Mm. So, yeah. I am, um, you know, and I think we spoke about this um, earlier before we started recording, there is so many women writers, Australian women writers, mm. that are, it's their time, you know. yeah. Um, you're one of them. Tony Jordan is one of them. Oh, the beautiful Jane Tony Huff. Jordan. Yeah, she was in here today <laughs> earlier for a chat. Yeah. Um, and what I'm noticing, and it's all genres, you know, all all women writer genres, that there's a camaraderie, there's a friendship. There's, I've got to tell you, in all the, with all the people that I've spoken to, any time somebody talks about an, you know, like yourself, who bring up Tony Jordan or whoever, it's always with great admiration mm. and respect, and I love that. I do too. And actually, if you read my books, they're all about women mm. supporting women, mm. and it's been my experience, um, mm. not just as a writer, but in every aspect of my life. Uh, it's women I've been mentored by mm. and women who've supported me. And of course, there's always situations where there's women who don't support you, but then they're not, they don't become important mm. either. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I have, you know, focused on the more important relationships, which have been very supportive. Mm. I mean, Tony Jordan's a really wonderful example yeah. of somebody who, um, within her field of expertise, which is writing, she champions. By championing other women, she's she's actually creating an environment that is good for all of us, mm. including her. Mm. She because she is a mentor mm. of writers, um, and and a champion of other writers, mm. and she's setting a good example. Mm. And I think that there are a number of writers like that who are setting a good example for those of us who are now coming up through the mm. ranks, if you like, because mm. um, this is only my second novel. So I'm still kind of, you know, I'm finding still finding way. my way. Yeah. And it means that um, because of the way she has interacted and encouraged me, I will interact and encourage someone else. Someone else. Yeah. And um, I think that's the way we move forward. Yeah. 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 Do you think that because in a way, your books and Tony's book, they sit slightly aside in terms of genre. Mm. They haven't been pigeonholed. Mm. And I quite like that mm. because marketers will say to you, and I'm guilty of this as well, that if we if it's not in a genre, then people won't find it. It's mm. about discovery. Mm. But that didn't happen to you. <laughs> no. And what's interesting, because people are now calling me an historical fiction writer, I have to be honest, I was never an historical fiction reader yeah. in that a lot of my favourite books are set in the past. Yes. <laughs> but, but I don't seek out historical fiction as a genre. I seek out good stories. Yes. And very often those stories are about something that has happened in the past. And when I uh, started writing Dictionary, I started writing it because I was interested in how the dictionary was put together yeah. and whether it was a biased 
project. It happened to have happened over 100 years ago. (laughs) And so that's the time period that I wrote about. And then the second book, because of the way it came about as a companion, was also set at that time. But I'd like to think that um, I could write in another era. Yeah. And therefore, what kind of writer does that make me? Um, You know, as soon as I start writing something more contemporary... Um, I'm slipping out of that historical fiction mm. category. Um, and, yeah, and I kind of, I, I like mm. that I'll be able to do that. I want to be able to do that. Mm. Um, because it's all about story. It is all I, about I think, story. I think sometimes that we're bogged down, like people in the industry are bogged down with uh, labels, you mm. know, whereas readers, I think read anything and everything. They do. And some people will seek out a genre and yeah. and that's I think that's where labels are useful. Yeah. I think it's like everything. Yeah. Uh, labels have their pros and their cons, yeah. don't they? Because yeah, they, they can do. pigeonhole a person or a book mm. <laughs> um, in a way that that can be misleading. Um, but at the same time they can they can lead you somewhere quickly. Um, and then, you know, it's only by opening the book and reading mm. the first few pages that you know whether you've arrived where you wanted to be. Mm. Mm. Do you think, so you, you, you said earlier that you've, um, you're writing full time now. Yes. Um, and do you think that that's, that's your journey now, that you'll be? I think so. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, if, um, if it turned out I needed to go back to work, I would be okay with that because I actually always really enjoyed working mm. um, and I enjoyed what I did yeah. and um, I don't think I'd ever go back to full-time work. I haven't, in fact, I wasn't working full-time mm. prior to writing Dictionary. I'd already, you know, mm. dropped to part-time. But I enjoy working. Mm. Uh, I enjoy being useful. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's a really kind of ordinary word, but it's probably the word that I have used the most in my working life Mm. when I've been asked, why do you want this job? The answer has always been because I think I could be useful. Mm. And when I say that, I've always enjoyed doing something that that will have some benefit Mm. beyond myself um, to the community. So if we go back to the first book, and really that was a search for, for, you know, for life, (laughs) one Italian summer. Do you think you've found that? I do. And yeah. I, if you've read that book, yeah. it, it becomes clear that um, it was, there's, I think there's an old fable about a man, I can't remember the name of it, but a man who goes on this journey around the world essentially looking for mm. this treasure and he comes back to the place where he started and the treasure is right in mm. front of him. Mm. And that's kind of what that book is, mm. is about. Um, it's about searching for the dream and realising that, well, that, first of all, realising that dreams don't exist in real life. That's why they're dreams. They're like a mirage. But realising that what you had mm. sometimes is good enough mm. and, in fact, just needs a little bit of tweaking. Mm. And that's kind of the conclusion I came to at the end of that book, But that journey, in a way, as journeys always do, I was looking for one thing, but I found something else. Mm. And what I found was writing Um, in terms of I'd always wanted to write, but what I found finally was 
kind of the um, wherewithal to do it, the, the motivation, you know, that was the, the point. discipline. Exactly. It was, that was the time. Mm. You know, this thing that I'd wanted to do that I wasn't doing and not doing it was causing me all sorts of kind mm. of mental health issues, really. Mm. It feels really odd to say not writing made me depressed mm. when, you know, the answer to that is, well, just sit down and write. Mm. I think there's so many people who would listen to your podcast who would understand that even when you really, really, really want to do something, sometimes it's still really hard to sit down and do it, even mm. though there's no impediments. There's nothing stopping me from doing that. There's nothing physically stopping no. you from doing it, but there is the world, like the opinions, the, you know, yeah. I find that just even with the way I live my life, like, you know, I like to travel and people say, oh, you know, that's lucky for some. Well, no. Yeah. It's not like I'm travelling on a five-star yeah, luxury yeah, agenda. Right. I very much tone it down so yeah. I'm able to do it so I'm able to achieve it. So I think there is a little bit of pressure, particularly in Australia, that you know, that we have big dreams, big pipe dreams, and you know, mm. they're never going to happen. Mm. Well, they do happen, they do, and and they can happen, bits of them can happen, yeah. And actually, that's where take you start exactly, yes. exactly. Just yeah. take small steps, yeah. In fact, that's my you know, I was asked recently. Uh, on a podcast, what my writing advice is, and my writing advice is to have really low expectations of mm. yourself, mm. because then you'll succeed. Mm. I think one of the problems I had actually when I wrote um, One Italian Summer is my expectations were quite high in terms mm. of word count and so mm. how many times a week I write and all of those sorts of things, and I so often failed to achieve them mm. that I had more days than not. I was um, disappointed in myself. Mm. And that's a really bad way to approach anything, really, to it's start really is, isn't with, it? Yeah, yeah. with being disappointed and down on yourself. Yeah. And I realised this so that when I started writing um, Dictionary of Lost Words that the thing I needed most was to create a sense of achievement and a sense of joy. And that wasn't going to happen by having a 1,000-word goal every day that I then, you know, failed to achieve every day. Um, and so I just lowered my expectations so that I write one word a day. That's, that's, all, I'm, that's all I expect of myself is one word. Um, and so far I have never failed mm. to, uh, to write that word. I mean, there's days I don't write, but that's only because I'm doing something else. But if I have, um, if I'm not on the road like I am at the moment or not on holiday or or whatever, I write every day of the week mm. um, because writing one word only takes five minutes mm. and the five minutes is mostly sitting down ordering my coffee and opening my laptop. And once you've done that, you can't stop at one word. Mm. You write 10 or 20, sometimes you do write a thousand words. Yeah. Um, and whatever you write above one word, you've overachieved. And I walk away from that writing session feeling good about myself. Great note to end on, Pip Williams. I love that advice. I think I'm going to take it myself. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Congratulations on the new book. It's called The Bookbinder of Jericho. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's been such a pleasure. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. 
or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.